the last good year I caught codfish, I think, was nine years ago. And ever since then, the numbers have gone down dramatically. This is John Auer. He's a commercial fisherman in George's Bank, which is off the coast of a town called Chatham, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod. My dad was a commercial fisherman, and I always went with him as much as I could, as my mother, as much as my mother would allow me. And then when I graduated high school, I fished with him for, I think, two or four years, and we fought all the time, father and son fights. And then I bought my own boat, and then I built a new boat, and that's the one I presently have now. I've been doing it for over 40 years. Wow. What's mm-hmm. the name of your boat? Miss Fitz, M-I-S-S-F-I-T-Z. It's, we keep it in the home port of Chatham at the Fish Beer. Over the past several years, John's catch has changed a lot. We used to catch large volumes of cod, get 30 to 40 cents. And then the final years we fished, we didn't catch a lot of cod. We maybe catch a couple thousand pounds a day, but we're getting two bucks a pound. Since then, John says cod have all but disappeared from the waters off of Chatham. He thinks part of it is a rise in gray seals, which hunt cod. But he says there's another reason, too. George's bank is getting warmer and the cod are leaving. The cod have good reason to leave in a hurry. Lots of things affect fish populations, but temperature is definitely one of them. And climate change is raising the average surface temperature of oceans around the world. But according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the waters off the northeastern United States are warming especially fast. John has seen the changes up close. Well, like I said, growing up, we used to have winters where the fleet was frozen into the dock for two months. I saw that when I was a kid. And um, now, oh, if you get a cold spell or if you have a week's worth of ice or something, everybody's like, oh, this is the worst winter ever. And with temperatures changing, what John sees when he pulls in the nets is changing, too. And this past summer, we caught a tremendous amount of warm water sharks that we'd never seen before, like sandbar sharks, dusky sharks, a bullhead. We caught a bullhead one day. We never saw that stuff. Sharks that would never migrate this far north. Some things take advantage of it and other things just don't adapt well to it. One of the species that migrated into John's area as the cod migrated out is lobster, partly because cod are one of the lobster's main predators. With like the lobster population, I have friends that have done extremely well the last 10 years, but they know in the back of their minds that things have definitely changed. Their seasons have become relatively shorter. Their, their production has been down. It's like a bad day at the stock market. They went from a bull market to a bear market. And it's, and it's not coming back up at all. John is concerned about the rest of his industry, too. The fleet is definitely getting older, and young people don't seem to want to get into it as much. For Chatham, it's still a viable fishery. For, for a lot of ports, it, people are getting out of it. It can be risky to stake your livelihood on a species that might leave in a few years. And the migrations don't seem likely to end anytime soon. The fish aren't the only ones moving. Even though... I work on that, it kind of blows my mind that we are living through the largest redistribution of life on Earth for tens of thousands of years. That's Professor Greta Petzl. I'm a, an ecologist at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania, and I'm also the director of an interdisciplinary research centre called the Centre for Marine Socioecology. And personally, most of what I work on is about the redistribution of species. So looking at how our climate is affecting where our species live, what that means for natural ecosystems, and then the humans that depend on those systems. 
In recent years, those systems have started to change. We know that because Professor Petzl and others in her field have been watching. We're finding that at least 25% of plants or animals are already documented to be shifting. So if you think that's like, obviously we haven't looked everywhere, but where we have looked, it's at least 25% of species shifting and up to 85% in some cases. So that is a large percentage of our life on Earth that is changing where it lives. That's a lot of species to monitor. So Professor Petzl and her colleagues set up REDMAP. That's the shorter name for the Range Extension Database and Mapping Project. Using REDMAP, fishers, divers, and anyone else who knows a lot about Australian marine life can submit a photo when they see something out of the ordinary, like a fish species outside its normal range. The photo is reviewed by a scientist, and another data point is added to the map. Thanks to REDMAP and studies conducted around the world, Professor Petzl and her colleagues have noticed patterns in the way species are moving, at least on a large scale. And all those patterns point to climate change as the driver. I would say that temperature is not the only reason species live where they live, where they live but it's an absolutely huge overriding factor of why we find species in places that we do and where we don't. Um, and all across the globe, we have plants and animals in the northern hemisphere moving north and in the southern hemisphere moving south. Those trends make sense. Earth is coldest at the poles, so as the planet warms, species should move toward the poles to stay in their normal temperature range. But Professor Petzl says it's a lot more complicated than that. So there's a whole lot of extensions and contractions happening all over the world, but it's happening in a disjointed kind of way because some species can keep up with the climate and other species either overshoot it or, or can't quite keep up. So it's not a case of everything just moving nicely and, you know, collaboratively and neatly all together down, down the coastline or, or, you know, across the mountain range. Um, it's, so there's a whole lot of disconnections happening all throughout the planet in our ecosystems and our trophic systems, and that has all sorts of flow-on implications for how these systems are structured and how they function. Definitely, um, you know, a black box of lots of unknown challenges that will crop up. As plants and animals move around the globe, Professor Petzl says that food resources, livelihoods, and entire ways of life could be affected. And as climate change makes more of the planet uninhabitable, people will be on the move too. I'm Maddie Goldberg. And I'm Candace Chen. In this episode, we ask what climate change will mean for the people who live in the places where the planet is changing the fastest. If we continue down the emissions path we're on, a lot of people will have no choice but to leave their homes. In many cases, that's a very dangerous position to be in. And even though climate change affects the entire planet, not everyone bears the same burden. And for some people, climate migration is already a reality. Bigger wildfires, stronger storms, intense heat waves, and other pressures have already displaced millions worldwide. We wanted to talk to the people who study this reality, the people who think about its past and future, and most importantly, the people who are living it right now. Researching this episode, Candace and I read a paper about humans' relationship to the Earth's climate over the last several thousand years. We talked to one of the paper's authors, Tim Kohler, an archaeologist at Washington State University. It's just fascinating to think about 
the extent to which populations have favored this fairly narrow temperature band from roughly say a mean annual temperature of 11 degrees to 15 degrees for a long period of time going back to the mid-Holocene. The mid-Holocene, by the way, is about 6,000 years ago. Then there's another sort of sub-mode around 27, 28 uh, degrees centigrade as well, where there are quite a few people, and that's mostly the Indian subcontinent, South Asia. I guess the interesting thing is that that goes back so far in time, it's been so stable. Professor Kohler and his colleagues have found that humans have occupied this pretty narrow temperature band on the surface of the Earth for thousands of years. So what happens now that Earth's surface temperature is changing so rapidly? What's interesting, but also, of course, extremely disturbing about that, is that if you project, project into the future, 50 years into the future, where that sweet spot will be located with respect to mean annual temperature, you see that it's going to move a lot, and it's going to move more in the next 50 years than it has in the last 6,000 years. And so the scary bottom line of the article is that there are portions, large portions in the tropics of the Earth's surface that will become hotter now than hotter in 50 years than almost any place on the surface of the Earth is right now, and really probably well beyond the place where humans could comfortably live. That's the projection if we stay on our current greenhouse gas emissions trajectory. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change calls this scenario RCP 8.5 and projects that, if we follow this path, warming is likely to exceed 2 degrees Celsius. According to Professor Kohler, because humans thrive at such a narrow range of temperatures, a change of two degrees could displace huge numbers of people. I think the single most important finding that perhaps most researchers do agree upon is that it's not often climate itself by itself that is driving people to move. Instead, it's climate acting through some other factor. That's Brian Jones, a professor at Baruch College in New York City. He and his colleagues built a model to predict which areas of the world will see the most migration due to climate change. Professor Jones is quick to point out that there's a lot of uncertainty involved in modeling something like this when you're using historical trends to try to make predictions about a future that's unlike anything we've ever seen. He and his colleagues also had to disentangle which of the factors that cause people to move are actually a result of climate change. Some were easy. Crop yields are clearly affected by climate. The average age of a population isn't. Other factors are a lot more complex governance and uh, instability. These things are all tied to climate change, but, but acting through various layers. Um, conflict is another really good example, right? Conflict can be tied back to climate, but it's a function of many, many different interacting components. It, it, it made it difficult for us to really have a lot of confidence in the total estimate of climate this baseline figure, well, important, is not one that we want to ascribe too much meaning to, because there's a tremendous amount of variability. Instead, Professor Jones thinks it's more important to focus on what he calls the hot spots identified by the model, places where people are likely to be most affected by climate hazards and where the most people will be displaced. Some areas he highlighted are the southern deltas of Bangladesh, 
which is already experiencing coastal erosion and seawater intrusion, as well as the Sahel region in Africa, including the northern highlands of Ethiopia, which face worsening droughts. If you're interested in this model, check out a New York Times piece from this summer that featured it. The article is by Abram Lustgarten, and it's called The Great Climate Migration Has Begun. As with any model, Professor Jones says it's important not to oversimplify or misrepresent the data. These kinds of projections can easily be used to stigmatize or marginalize displaced people. And even though models of the Earth system can tell us a lot, believe me, Candace and I are Earth science majors, we're obsessed with these kinds of models, they can't tell us what it's like to feel the effects of climate change firsthand, and we wanted to talk to people who could. If you could just start by um, introducing yourself briefly. Yeah, so my name is Jason Morris, uh, battalion chief for CAL FIRE, which has a contract for the town of Paradise. Paradise, California was the site of the wildfire known as the Camp Fire, which broke out in November of 2018. It was the deadliest wildfire in the state's history, killing 85 people. By the time it was 100% contained, almost all of the town was gone. So during the campfire, I was actually the chief of our dispatch center, which is um, our 911 center. And so uh, I have five guys in there and they took over 2,400 uh, 911 calls in less than 12 hours. It was a very traumatic um, event, as you can imagine. This fire was moving at uh, an acre a minute. So an acre is the size of a football field. So in one minute, the whole football field was gone. Um, it spotted over two miles ahead of itself, which is unheard of. That's a brand new record. Spotting is when the sparks or embers from a fire travel far ahead and start a new fire. And that's not the only record California wildfires are breaking. Recent research led by Michael Goss, a researcher at Stanford University, finds that the number of dry, windy, wildfire-prone days in California has doubled since the 80s. Chief Morris has seen the effects. I've worked for, for um, Cal Fire for 20 plus years. In that time, um, I've also, uh, you know, we start off as a seasonal employment uh, out here. So you're a seasonal firefighter because that's when the fires are really hitting us. Nowadays, our fires are year round. There is no season. There's broad scientific consensus that California's epidemic of wildfires is due at least in large part to climate change. Chief Morris has watched these shifts happen since he started in 1995. I'm telling you, I'm proof right here that I'm telling you that our fires were not that big back then and they didn't last for months on end. It's pretty crazy. So the last 10 years, I'm not kidding you, the last 10 years, we have literally said every single year, this is an unprecedented fire season for 10 years. And, we, and so we've been saying that for 10 years. So guess what? It's not unprecedented anymore. It's the norm. That new norm has destroyed homes, businesses, and lives. And in the face of these catastrophes, people are choosing or being forced to move. According to a research group called the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, over a million people in the U.S. have been displaced by natural disasters every year since 2016. It's not just wildfires. I took a look at another way climate change can cause destruction. Hurricanes. Scientists are still investigating the exact connections between climate change and hurricanes. 
but many suspect that with global temperatures on the rise, hurricanes and tropical storms will become more destructive. Warmer water has more energy to feed these storms, and higher sea levels mean stronger storm surges. On September 20th, 2017, Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico. The Category 5 hurricane devastated the entire island. I think I was like two months without power. This is Andrea Rivera, a junior at Harvard University who has lived in Puerto Rico her whole life. Part of what made Maria so destructive was that it came just weeks after Hurricane Irma. So we were kind of unprepared and we were kind of confident that it was going to be like the same thing again, but it really wasn't. I was about two months without power, but some people like six months after had still had not power. It's hard to imagine how a months long power outage would feel. We were living like as a response to everything that was happening. We were adapting constantly. And you can do that for a day, you can do that for a week. But when it comes to two months, living in that sort of like, you're not sure if you're going to go to the grocery store and find food. You're not sure if you're going to have, when you're going to get water, when you're going to get power back. Because of global warming, coastal areas are becoming increasingly threatened. Puerto Rico is just beginning to see shifts in where people choose to build because of these evolving risks. But, of course, residents' movement isn't restricted to within the island. Especially following Maria, larger questions emerge. Questions like, when your business is destroyed or halted by power outages, when you can't make money, do you choose to leave the island entirely? According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about 4% of the Puerto Rican population migrated following Hurricane Maria. I had a couple of friends who, like, their parents moved to Florida because of this, because obviously um, a lot of people can't withstand a week without working. A lot of people can't withstand, like, a month, let alone, like, a month or two. But not everyone has the resources to move. I have a, a, a uncle that lives in Pennsylvania, and so my mom sent my grandmother to go there because she was alone. Um, and so my mom asked me, like, do you want to go? Because, like, obviously it's easier. And I remember being really sad and I was like, I don't want to live, let leave home, especially not at a time like this, especially because I was, I, I felt an attachment to here, even though I was literally without power, without water. And then I had the opportunity to go, thankfully, which again is like a huge privilege because a lot of people were stuck and they didn't really have the option. And at least I had family in the U.S. where like I could be like, if I really wanted to go, I could have gone. In the end, Andrea decided to stay. But for me, it was just like, I just wanted to you know, stay here and, and help in any way that I could. These months spent without power, shelter, or adequate care threatened both physical and mental health. An estimated 3,000 people died from storm-related incidents, and more than one-fifth of residents reported a year later that they needed mental health services. According to the American Psychological Association, more than 7% of school-aged children there meet clinical standards for PTSD, about twice the rate seen in the general population. We have a weakened infrastructure and like more hurricanes. So like that's a recipe for disaster for sure. I'm afraid that like if a hurricane like this were to happen again, like today or tomorrow, we would basically see the same thing repeat itself. Puerto Rico's recovery has been slow. As the island works to rebuild infrastructure, they're also facing a long-standing debt crisis. Anticipating more hurricanes to come, some have left the island, but it's no small thing to pick up and leave your home. And many people, including Andrea, don't intend to. Like, a lot of people ask me, like, having lived through this, do you even want to live in Puerto Rico? Like, you can live literally anywhere on Earth and it's not going to be an issue. And I'm just like, 
you know, home for me is where I grew up, where I like literally been living my whole life. I wouldn't change, like even after living in Boston, like I love Boston, I love the culture there as well, but I could never compare it to like, you know, a homemade meal, like, um, you know, the places of going to the beaches that I've been going to for the last 20 years. For me, that's like home. <laughs> I don't even know how you can describe that. It's just the feeling you get it's very hard to describe what like home is. But for me, it was just like that moment, you know, when you have the chance to go somewhere else, but you realize that like, this is where you want to be. As people leave the places most threatened by climate change, already dealing with the loss of their home, they face a world that can be incredibly hostile to refugees. The United States is no exception. So especially recently, you know, we, hear words like, um, you know, flood and horde and tide used to describe immigrants. And these kind of natural catastrophe type words to describe immigrants uh, writ large, um, it's, it's important to see that, you know, this political rhetoric about refugees and the refugee crisis is linked more broadly to these broader uses of language um, that have been used over time to justify the exclusion of people in motion for, for all kinds of, of reasons. This is Dr. Evan Taparada. And I'm a postdoctoral fellow in Global American Studies at the Charles Warren Center here at Harvard. According to Dr. Taparada, political rhetoric can be dangerous. You know, I mean, words like crisis just kind of inherently bring up all kinds of bad feelings. You know, no, no one wants to have a crisis. No one wants to have to navigate a crisis. And in some ways to frame the situation as a, as a refugee crisis, there's a way in which that can justify the decisions that individual governments make to exclude refugees. They're full humans with full lives and, and full worlds. And it's important that we think about how refugee crisis kind of denies that as a term and as a phrase and as a concept for understanding the situation. And the last four years have seen a huge rise in the worst kinds of language. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. But we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. For me, I think that, you know, pe people want to be home. And I think for many of the people, especially when we think about refugees and, and asylum seekers, um, these are people who are, are leaving home, not because they want to, but because they need to. These are, are folks who've been thrust from the thing that matters the most to many of us, um, and, that's, and that's home. Dr. Taparada sees a very different kind of crisis forming. But if we kind of cut that second E off refugee, then I think we, we could also have a conversation about a refuge crisis. What I mean by that is a crisis of countries around the world to not do their part and to not do everything they can to help refugees and to extend aid to refugees and to open, open their countries to refugees. Um, I think there's, there's all kinds of actual legitimate crises, but I think these stem more from the nation states that can really do, do so much to resolve um, the problems we're facing, but ultimately don't do as much as they can. We have always moved towards closing the borders and not really opening them up. But the past few years, um, 
of Trump administration that this has really reached the highest intensity of denying entry to asylum seekers. This is Yeva Husunite, a Harvard associate professor in anthropology. The president also is just the symptom of this discourse that's really popular. And one of the reasons why it's popular is because it provides, as I was saying, simple explanations to very complex problems. And it's, it's also a signal, a response to people's fears. Build that wall, 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 build that wall. In 2016, the annual refugee ceiling was 85,000. Throughout the Trump presidency, that number has steadily dropped. The 2020 ceiling is only 18,000. Denying refugees and immigrants entry to the U.S. has been the political mainstay of the Trump administration. It is a very good political tactic to say that there is a threat and we can, um, if we build a border wall, we can protect the country from it. And I think it's a, it's a very powerful political message. It's easy to garner votes. And it also intersects with other forms of insecurity. With these kinds of political motives in play, is there any way to make the U.S. more empathetic, more open to climate refugees in the future? It is really a matter of public perception, consciousness, and understanding of what is what is human community and where do we draw that boundary between these are the people that matter to us and these are the people that don't matter to us because they came from another country because of the different skin color, because of the different religion, because those are not the problems that we caused and now they are coming to us. Like how, how do we expand that, that limit of the community that we care about? And I think if we do that, then a lot of logistical questions legal and logistical questions, infrastructural questions. That's just a matter of building and design and ingenuity. The hardest one is the hardest borders or the boundaries are really in people's minds. And I don't, I don't know how to change that. The United States is also the nation that portrays itself as a nation of immigrants that points to things like the Statue of Liberty as a symbol of our open arms to migrants. And specifically, if you read closely the text of the Emma Lazarus poem that's emblazoned on the base of the Statue of Liberty, it's saying that we are specifically invested in welcoming migrants who are oppressed and who are coming from, you know, tempest-tossed shores and, and places and nations. This is Dr. Taparada again. That's always the, the challenge, the distance between, you know, that kind of celebratory mythology of the U.S. as a nation of immigrants and what actually happens on the ground. But in the case of climate change, it might be that we find ourselves in a place where our leaders are talking about climate change not as something that will send untold numbers of people to the U.S. looking for shelter, but as something that affects all of us. It really does. You know, climate change has no borders. 